The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as you've heard, um, Shelley and I have been reflecting on this central part of how the Buddha encouraged us to practice what we hear in the West sometimes or often call retreating. And obviously it's a big deal. It can even seem a little cultish at times in uh, our Western tradition of insight meditation or vipassana because it's what the community often talks about. Oh, you went on that retreat. Oh, I want to go on this retreat. And it's, you know, it, we should be a little suspicious of this particular medicine of going on retreat. Because, you know, we, I'm assuming <laughs> I'm not alone, we all have messy lives, unfinished business, things to do, complications to deal with. And so we sort of feel like as much as I'm attracted maybe to doing a retreat, doesn't seem like it could possibly be a long-term strategy, like the way I'm going to deal with all the messes in my life is not be there, <laughs> you know, leave them and go on retreat. But uh, I'm sure you're finding that when we go on retreat, we don't actually disappear from our lives we really meet our life in a, hopefully, a, a more fresh, more real, more exposed way. That's why we sometimes call them intensive retreat practice, right? Because it's intense, surprisingly intense. It's not really an escape, is it? <laughs> I mean, if there were some way to not take the mind, with us, maybe it would be an escape, but the heart, the mind, all the tendencies, all the unattended wounds, unresolved knots in our heart, and, and not only that, just all of the tension we've been laying down on the body over these decades, we find it waiting for us, right? All the aches and pains, all the stiffness, there it is in the body. So this is why, you know, it's not some kind of, I mean, it can be anything, there can be a shadow to anything. So in retreat practice, there can be a shadow of someone trying to avoid what's difficult to be with. And in a way, you know, instead of thinking about our Buddhist retreats as a kind of spa, where we can recuperate so we can face life, which it kind of happens a little bit, but in a way, in a perfect life, we'd go to the spa first, then we'd go on the retreat, right? We'd get ready for the retreat by taking a vacation, getting a lot of body work, getting into shape, doing yoga twice a day, eating good food for a couple years, you know, really getting in mental, emotional, physical shape, making amends, 
living harmoniously so that when we go on retreat, nothing's going to haunt us like all the mistakes. We've already made amends, addressed what needed to be addressed, cleaned up our act. Then we're ready to go on retreat. So in a way, you know, it can be messy in our lives because to be honest, we often have these mixed intentions. There's often for folks, you know, a deeper sense like I really need to meet my life. And there's also this sense, I really need a spa. <laughs> you know, I need to crash, I need to be taken care of, I need to be put back together so I can continue with my life. So that's a lot to put on our retreat, you know, these, both of these intentions. Pema Chodron has this quote I like. She's a Tibetan Buddhist nun, a Westerner, but a Tibetan Buddhist nun. We have a choice. We can, we have a choice. We can spend our whole life suffering because we can't relax with how things really are, or we can relax and embrace the open-ended, the open-endedness of the human situation, which is fresh, unfixed, fixated and unbiased. And that's in a way what we're trying to do. We're trying to relax and embrace the open-endedness of our human situation, which is fresh, unfixated, and unbiased. Like Shelley said, learning not to pretend, learning to be real. And from our teacher side, Utejaniya, First, we must ask ourselves, what is our relationship to reality? What is our understanding of life? From this, we will find meditation is really the only sensible approach to our, to our reality and the problems that can arise from living. We can use it as an escape or, or avoidance of life, or we can use it as a practice to attend to life. It would be nice if we didn't need the very difficult, the simple, but the very difficult work of retreating. And especially as lay people, where we're, there are a lot of expectations in our culture, in probably all cultures, you know, whether it's to raise a family or to get involved, to take on responsibilities and to contribute to the well-being of the community. And uh, it's hard to do that when there's this subtle but pervasive underlying dissatisfaction. There's a kind of hunger, if you haven't noticed, in our lives where nothing that we do, nothing that we get really quenches this uneasiness in our hearts. So that's a bit of a setup where, especially as we get a little older, there's this expectation that we're a mature adult, where we should be able to hold responsibility, we should be able to contribute. 
you know, we should be able to have some wise words <laughs> for others when they need them, you know. But when we're really honest with ourselves, like when we go on retreat and things are more simple, we can come face to face with, yeah, just a profound sense of knowing that we don't know, which ends up, we don't even know, truthfully, right? A lot of the time, we don't even know how to take care of ourselves in that deepest sense. It's so humiliating when we catch the mind running in circles, obsessing about something we know better. Like, I know I don't need to obsess about that, and there, are, there the mind is. Going down that rabbit hole, fantasizing about this, fantasizing about getting revenge from somebody we imagine hurt us and is deserving of revenge. This is from Bhante Gunaratana. He's one of our elders in this early Buddhism here in the West. He's from Sri Lanka. He's been a monk for, boy, 60 years, probably, maybe even a little bit more. I think he ordained as a boy, and he's well into his 80s, maybe even getting close to 90. Um, and he <clears throat> was the founder of Bhavana Society in West Virginia, and uh, just taught at Insight Meditation Society for many decades. He came to Minnesota a number of times, really impressive Buddhist monk and teacher, meditator. And one of his seminal books, Mindfulness in Plain English, some of you maybe have read, even though it was written long ago, it's quite good. And this is from the beginning, where <laughs> the chapter is something like, I think it's, yeah, meditation, why bother? <laughs> Which is really a good question. Probably some of you are asking that question about now, a couple of days into the retreat. And he's talking about dukkha or suffering. So he writes, suffering is a big word in Buddhist thought. It is a key term and it should be thoroughly understood. The Pali word is dukkha and it does not just mean the agony of the body. It means that deep, subtle sense of unsatisfactoriness, which is a part of every mind moment and which results directly from the mental treadmill. The essence of life is suffering, said the Buddha. At first glance, this seems exceedingly morbid and pessimistic. It even seems untrue. After all, there are plenty of times when we are happy, aren't there? <laughs> and then he goes, no, there are not. <laughs> it's sort of blunt. And he writes, it's just, it just seems that way. Take any moment when you feel really fulfilled and examine it closely. Down under the joy you will find the, that subtle, all-pervasive undercurrent of tension. That no matter how great this moment is, it is going to end. No matter how much you just gained, you're, you are either going to lose some of it or spend the rest of your days guarding what you have got and scheming how to get more. And then in the end, you're going to die. In the end, you lose everything. It is all transitory. And then he writes, sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Luckily, it's not. 
at it all. It only sounds bleak when you view it from the level of ordinary pers- mental perspective. Now this point is really important because one of the things we're exposed to on retreat or whenever we have time to practice is moments of real despair. Like I mentioned, you know, not knowing, like we feel the enormity of the unease in the body and the heart and the mind, and we don't know what to do about it. Because one of the first insights is realizing anything I do to try to fix the yucky feeling I have makes it worse. Have you had that experience? It's called getting cornered by life, by reality. Because it's a hard truth to wake up to, but our response to dukkha, to suffering, turns out to be the cause. It's the not, like the Buddha says, it's the not really understanding what dukkha is, which means we're responding to it in a way that doesn't help. It's the not understanding dukkha that is the cause for dukkha. Thinking that I'm going to pull some rabbit out of my hat or do some dharma move, some spiritual move, and get rid of dukkha is what makes dukkha dukkha. Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Luckily it's not, not at all. It only sounds bleak when you view it from the level of ordinary mental perspective, the very level at which the treadmill mechanism operates. Right? It's like that old adage, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're really good at running in a treadmill, everything looks like you should be running in a treadmill. You know, let me just fix this. Let me just do this. Let me... And we're always exhausted, that spiritual exhaustion. So Bhante Gunaratana writes, down under that level lies another perspective, a completely different way to look at the universe. It is a level of functioning where the mind does not try to freeze time, where we do not grasp onto experience as it flows by, where we do not try to block things out or ignore them. It is a level of experience beyond good and bad, beyond pleasure and pain. It is a lovely way to perceive the world, and it is a learnable skill. It's not easy, but it can be learned. And this is not some passive thing. I mean, hopefully you're realizing that being on retreat. It takes, you know, this tremendous commitment and loyalty to the truth of the moment, loyalty to the experience of embodiment, this willingness to begin again and again, this more refined skill at sustaining present moment awareness. And then things begin to happen. But initially, just to be honest, it's intense. And there are really moments that are heavy or dark or difficult. And part of the confidence that arises over time, it's like, it's the confidence of having seen it all. Seeing those dark, difficult places, the places of confusion, the places of doubt, and coming out the other end, like, doesn't mean we resolved it, 
But somehow we realized, like everything else, this stuff comes and goes, and it's not really personal. And that, the beginning of that insight is really, um, it comes, it, it makes the heart really strong, fearless. I was looking at an article by Gil Fransdahl, which is quite good, by the way. It's very short. Mindfulness Meditation as Buddhist Practice. And he just talks about, you know, the practice is learning, using mindfulness to know the mind, using our mindfulness to train the mind, and using mindfulness to free the mind. I think this is a really nice way to think about what we're doing on retreat. You know, and the thing is, so it's all about using the mind to know the mind, to train the mind, to free the mind. But we haven't, frankly, been that interested in the mind, which is probably the most ironic thing in the universe. You know, clearly the mind is the most relevant thing about being a human being. But when you think about it, your life, how much time have we really devoted to getting to know this heart-mind. It's really frightening. And even those of us, you know, who consider ourselves sincere students of the Buddhist teachings and interested in the mind, it's just so easy to put it off. It's like when we're sitting, we have ideal conditions, you know, some of us on retreat now, whether you're at the retreat center or at home and arrange your schedule, you know, I'm guessing, generally speaking, we have pretty ideal conditions to practice. And yet, you know, we're settled, we even have some calm. And then the mind will, will remember some drama or some silly thing. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this thought stream. This is by far the most important thing for me to do at this time. And it could be really silly, like some movie we saw 10 years ago has come to mind, and it's like, I need to remember how that movie played out. Have you done this? And it's sort of like, it's got, okay, now what happened? Oh yeah, and then that. And it's like, we're not okay just dropping it. Like, do I really need to know or remember what happened in that movie? No. Or whether it's some movie that we're sort of rehashing, regurgitating, or some interaction with another human being. Did I really do that? <laughs> and it's just interesting how we're willing to abandon. And, you know, we take care of some things. I, Wynne and I took a nice walk this afternoon, and... Uh, along the river, uh, West River Parkway here in Minneapolis, and two people drove by in their Harley Davidson's motorcycles, and they just uh, radiated like they had been really cared for. You know, they were shiny, and just the way the motor ran, and, you know, the costumes the people wore that kind of sort of fit that, um, you know, people who are into their motorcycles. We put a lot of care into things. You know, for some of you, it's kitchen gadgets and coffee, and others, it's Harley Davidsons, and others, it's backpacking or travel or whatever. But do we bring as much interest and care to the mind? 
And if not, that's sort of interesting, isn't it? And so this is really the invitation, you know, going on retreat, the whole point is, and you know, like Common Ground Community, we've spent so much of the community's resources to purchase and develop the retreat center. And a lot of us, you know, those of you who arranged your schedules, I'm sure it wasn't easy. I know some of you rented an Airbnb to do the retreat, or you had a get someone to take care of the kids or whatever, you know, people had to do to do these retreats. Just to get to know the mind. So it's nice when we realize we're not alone, that people are beginning, have throughout history, seen the real value in getting to know the mind. And remember, getting to know the mind it means that this mind is being known. It's remembering, like this mind is similar to saying this experience. Experience is a moment of mind. Experience is always being known in the mind, by the mind. So if you want to know what the mind is, this is the mind. This experience is the mind, being known in the mind. So there's knowing and the experience, and all that's happening in the mind. Does that make sense? So when we have a moment of knowing the mind, we're knowing that this is being known. I know it gets a little trippy to say it that way, but it's important to contemplate that this, what we call my life, the world, the planet, my friends, my responsibilities, it's always a moment of mind. And it always involves something being known. It's really that simple. And it's important that it's understood to be that simple. Because if we imagine there's more to any moment of mind, that's just something being known. Whatever that more might be, like, no, no, this is happening to me. Okay, that thought is being known. That feeling, maybe there's an emotional feeling or a charge that goes with that thought, but well, that's being known. So in a way, our res in terms of our responsibilities, just to use Gil's little map here to, to know the mind, to train the mind, to free the mind, you know, the first responsibility is just to be a real student of our subjective experience like how it actually is. There's an experience being known. Can the mind know that, that there's an experience being known? Oh yeah, this experience is being known. And we're not putting a spin. Any moment, any experience will do. We don't need a different moment. So if we're sitting in a beautiful samadhi pose, spine is upright, body's perfectly still, and we might be in that pose, but we might be just thinking about that movie <laughs> or whatever. Or we might actually be asleep. But there can be then a moment where the mind just acknowledges it. Whether it's a moment that's very subtle and serene, or a moment of reactivity, a moment of dullness, a moment of clarity. But in terms of the practice, it's a moment of mind. 
it's a moment of something being known in the mind. And to know the mind, we need to know that this is being known here and now in the mind. And of course, we don't have to say that to ourselves incessantly. This is being known in the mind. Although you can from time to time if it's helpful. It doesn't hurt if it helps. But it's really that recognition. It's learning to respect the present moment, which is a moment of the mind. And then once we get a sense of the mind, then we have this possibility of training, shaping the mind teasing out, abandoning, stop feeding the qualities of mind, the tendencies of mind that aren't helping. Simply because we know the mind, we know what to starve and feed. If we don't know the mind, we have no idea you know, what's there, what needs to be fed, what needs to be weakened. And interestingly, the feeding and the starving you know, we're starving the hindrances that Shelley talked about this morning. And the way we starve unhelpful qualities in the mind is we recognize their unhelpful qualities and we recognize how they get fed and we stop feeding them. All of that is just naturally discerned by knowing the mind. So training the mind is just the natural evolution of knowing the mind. Feeding the wholesome qualities like interest, curiosity, joy, steadfastness or persistence, tranquility, concentration or stillness, equanimity, mindfulness. These awakening factors, they're called... <clears throat> They're developed, they're brought into balance by learning to recognize them here in the mind. Oh, there's a lot of tranquility being known here and now. There's joy being known here and now, lightness of the heart. There's investigation or interest being known. There's stillness, the peace of a still mind being known. There's equanimity, that radiant balance being known. And all of these, all this work of training is really in the service of freeing the mind, letting go. But letting go is sort of a natural result of the first two. We get to know the mind. This is being known here and now, here and now in the mind. This is being known. This is being felt. And the more we're able to be in the stream of one mind conditioning the next, one moment of mind conditioning the next moment of mind, right? Because we've gotten to know the mind, we're getting to know that the mind isn't fixed. Like I might be in a really, you know, negative space, really heavy mood reactive mood or whatever it might be. <clears throat> but if the mind is really knowing the mind, it sees it as a stream, a river, right? Everything's in motion. And because it's in motion, it's changing. And knowing that it's in motion and knowing what's 
healing and helpful and what's unhelpful and stressful, that knowing changes how the mind unfolds. Our teacher, Shelley, one of our teachers that Shelley and I have studied with Saito Utejaniya, he has a very pithy little statement. It goes something like this, wisdom knows causes. And that's really about this training. The wisdom we're developing is the mind understands how feeding and starving happens, how unhelpful tendencies of the mind, qualities in the mind are being fed and how they can be weakened, how the wholesome qualities of mind are being ignored or they could be strengthened. And that just gets incorporated into the mind. So a lot of what we're doing is we're knowing the mind well enough with enough continuity that we can shape the mind in the direction of this radiant, clear, steady balance. And that mind knows how to liberate itself, basically. And the equation that the Buddha normally used in his teachings way back when was seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. So this is... in the in the Buddhist tradition for so many centuries, there's been so many rifts on this simple teaching that the Buddha used. So this goes right back to the time of the Buddha himself. He would talk about seclusion. Now, there's even some prerequisites for seclusion that I spoke of earlier. You know, if our life is a mess, it's not so easy to seclude ourselves. So in a perfect world, we've taken care of a lot in our life a lot of the unfinished business, because then when we go on retreat, we're not haunted by all the unfinished business that we left. And then just there's that physical seclusion of being a relatively quiet, natural space, ideally. And there's the noble silence where We've given each other permission, like those of you who are at the retreat center, and then hopefully those of you at home too, to some degree, you've you've negotiated with your community, like the people at the retreat center have, hey, we're not going to really talk to each other. We're going to be loving community members, we're going to live in harmony together, but we're not going to ask about where you went to college or what you do for a living or, you know... What kind of coffee do you drink? We don't we don't go there because we're interested in the seclusion. Because the work we're doing is really subtle, so it's a real gift to shed so much of life that's relatively unimportant. Like I mentioned on the first night, you know, we refrain from sexual activity because it's so complex and it's such a break. To not that we're not a sexual being anymore, but we're just not engaging that part of ourselves. It may still move, you know, in our hearts, thoughts, urges, whatever, but we're not feeding, we're choosing intentionally not to feed it, just to keep things simple. So we have our physical seclusion, the seclusion from our social activity through not speaking much 
or very little. And um, and even mental seclusion. It's like you see the off-ramp, or I, I could plan that out, but I don't have to. I could think about that, but I don't have to. I could turn on my cell phone, but I don't have to. And it's really protecting the mind. Honey, you have one job to remember the present moment. And really you don't have any other responsibilities. So the seclusion really allows for that intimacy with the present moment, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And that's the next piece, that's where the dispassion comes from. So when we start feeling that, and you might, some of you might be having moments of this already, where you just feel like uh, there's nothing in it for me. And it's not the same as aversion. It's like uh, you're eating something you really like, but there's no kind of grasping after the pleasure. Or you're doing something you don't like, like getting up in the morning, but there's nobody bothering to be aversive. Right? That's dispassion, where there's an unpleasant experience and the heart isn't bothering to be aversive. And then there's a pleasant experience and the heart isn't bothering craving, trying to hold on to the pleasant. And even you'll notice sometimes neutral experiences and the mind isn't bothering to ignore it. And that's the flavor of dispassion. It's dispassion, it's a letting go of reactivity. And that sets up moments of cessation where the whole, like uh, Bhante Gunaratana said in that passage I read, that shift in perspective from a, a self-framing, framing, perceiving from the point of view of self to a whole other way of perceiving that doesn't involve a centered self, a permanent self. And those, that's what cessation is really talking about. The selfing ceases in moments. And we notice that. Wisdom needs to notice those moments to connect the dots. And that's what results in letting go. Putting down the load. And that's our path. And that's why we go on retreat. To know the mind, train the mind, to free the mind. And freeing the mind is really this natural process of the heart really learning to appreciate simplicity, the seclusion, simplicity. Out of this simplicity is a profound intimacy with things, which leads to dispassion, being with the joys and sorrows without craving and aversion. And that without that sort of um, stickiness of the feeling tone of pleasure and pain, right? not having a problem with pleasure and pain, the whole structure of that habit of perceiving things in terms of a permanent self can collapse in a moment, for just a moment. And the mind sees the world, sees this moment, sees the mind free of that self-centeredness a moment of cessation of selfing.
And that results in that letting go, the process of letting go, of not picking up that habit, undoing the knot. So we'll leave it here for tonight. Let's just take a few moments, let go of the words, appreciate a little silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.